So we've come together on the occasion of the new moon, Yuposita Day. might reflect that the new moon is like, symbolizes renewal. So on these occasions we're renewing our commitment to the training of Dhamma Vinaya, to following the path, the way of practice that the Buddha left us. In Thailand, you hear the words that describe the Buddha, Puru, Putun, Pupapan, all the time in monasteries. Puru means the knower. Putun means the awakened one. Pupapan refers to the mind that is open to the truth. Barn is the same word you use for a flower, like a lotus when it's bloom in bloom. The petals open to the sun. So the Buddha is the knower, the awakened one, whose mind is open. Awaken to the truth. It's our good fortune as human beings that we've come into contact with the Buddha's teachings, the wisdom, the compassion of the Buddha. Because we've all had some insight into the nature of existence as human beings. We're aware that Life is bound up with dukkha. There's an unsatisfactory side to existence as human beings. If only that we're subject to birth, old age, sickness and death. And the nature of the world is bound up with dukkha. People animals, the things of this world, the material things, don't last. So it's hard to find lasting or true happiness in things that don't last. And we experience mental dukkha on different levels of different intensities during our life. And often it's noticing that, becoming aware of that, we, that we come to practice and maybe are drawn to the wisdom of the Buddha. When we don't recognize dukkha as dukkha, then we're caught into delusion. The Buddha was the one who 
penetrated the Four Noble Truths, understood what is dukkha, its cause, realized the cessation of dukkha, cultivated the path, maga, that leads to the end of dukkha. He penetrated the Four Noble Truths, so he understood perfectly what dukkha is, but also the cause of it and the way out of it. When we get caught into dukkha, it's because we're not yet seeing it or knowing it with the mindfulness and the wisdom of an enlightened being. We tend to react to it rather than contemplate dukkha as dukkha and see it for what it is. We react to it. So it's the arising of, it's the cause for the arising of kilesa, mental hindrances, mental defilements, sometimes described as obscurations of mind. Mental states, qualities that cover over the mind, that form the delusion, rooted in greed, anger, delusion, and they're all their offshoots and different modes, different forms. When there's no mindfulness and wisdom, dukkha leads to kilesa, which leads to more dukkha. It's a cycle. They say the Buddha is um, the chief of conquerors, not having conquered other people, but having conquered the defilements, the mental defilements, obscurations. Through cultivating the path, developing mindfulness, wisdom, gaining the clarity, the brightness that illuminated what is the path, what is not, what is the mind free from defilement, what is the mind that is defiled. It's illuminated by the training and the cultivation of the path. So the Buddha didn't give in to the kilesas or the hindrances. So he freed his mind from dukkha. We still experience dukkha as long as we give in to kilesa and hindrances. Sometimes it's useful to talk about the practice in this way and bring it right back to our own mind take responsibility for our own experience rather than always seeking to blame external things. If we're suffering, it's because we are giving in to Kilesa, giving in to the hindrances, five hindrances that prevent the arising of wholesome mental states. Sila Samadhi Panya, or the path, doesn't arise or is not present when kilesa and the hindrances are present. So our practice is very much a 
about developing the effort to bring up the path factors or the eightfold factors of the Eightfold Noble Path. We come to live in a forest to do that. You know, the Buddha himself lived in the forest, practiced in the forest, was enlightened in the forest. We're following directly in his footsteps. And the forest has a very calming effect on the mind. It's a suitable place for practice. You live in the forest, like many of our teachers, Ajahn Chah and others. You, you can see our experience as human beings reflected in the forest. So they talk about the practice, compare it to a tree. Ajahn Chah used to say, practice is like planting a tree. Your job is to look after it, nourish it protect it and then set, stand back and allow the tree to grow at its own pace, to be patient. Or they compare a mature tree to the practice. They say the earth is the, symbolizes sila, like the foundations of the earth that the roots of the tree are established in. The trunk of the tree is samadhi, the firmness stability of mind. The crown of the tree, the foliage is like wisdom, panya. The effect of all the foliage, the leaves, the crown of the trees, it provides shade, protection from the sun, from the rain and the elements if you're underneath it. So it's actually allowable for a monk to live at the foot of a tree. It's one of our practices. The practice provides, or cultivates wisdom, and wisdom provides shade. So in the sun, it provides coolness. The wisdom is what helps to uproot the mental defilements, greed, anger, delusion, which causes suffering. Suffering is seen as hot, agitating, stressful. Wisdom is that which cools the mind down by removing the cause of suffering. So the one who has completely removed the cause of suffering is like a huge tree, sturdy and providing shade not only for themselves but for others. They used to call Ajahn Chah, used to say he's like a big tree. You notice, Ajahn Chah used to say, you notice the trees in the forest, they, even though they're big, have very strong, sturdy trunks. They can still sway in the wind. There's still some flexibility there. That's why they don't snap every time it wind, and the wind blows. Wisdom is like that. There's some flexibility. So you can adapt and learn from conditions and contemplate conditions rather than always fight them or react from fixed views or wrong views. He always also used to point out how all the trees in the forest support each other when there is a strong wind or a storm. 
they don't all fall down because they're actually breaking the effect of the wind on each other tree, every other tree. They're all protecting each other. So often it's only the edge of the forest or single trees in fields that fall down. <coughs> so that's a bit like the Sangha. We actually protect each other through upholding the Vinaya, practicing, providing examples to each other, supporting each other, a bit like trees in the forest. So we live in the forest and it gives us simple reflections on our practice. The practice is for liberation from dukkha. So we're finding a way out, a way of true liberation from dukkha. It's not the same as what we're used to in the world. You know, we come into the world with what we call patuginas, unenlightened beings, or literally people who are thick with kilesa. The mind is thickly covered over by kilesa, delusions, wrong views, attachments, and so on. We come into the world as unenlightened beings, so we have suffering. But until we've heard the Dhamma and recognized the value of Dhamma practice, we tend to just follow the habits of everyone else around us, our parents and society around us, which is to try and escape from dukkha just by finding more pleasure, more happiness, more success, but in a worldly sense. So we, when we have pain, we try to get rid of it, go towards pleasure. Always looking for pleasant experiences, which provide some distraction, some temporary sense of fulfillment. It's the nature of life for the unenlightened being. Ajahn Chah used to say that's like being caught in a cage However much you dress up the cage, you can give it golden bars, plush five-star furnishing, it's still a cage. You're still stuck. It's because the mind still sees the appropriate way to deal with dukkha is just find more happiness and get away from dukkha. So happiness is basically when there's no dukkha coming up fades, we, we feel happy. But that happiness is just the happiness for more dukkha, as long as we haven't seen through the whole process of cause and effect. We haven't seen that we're still attached, still deluded. The kind of happiness we seek in the world is, is only actually laying the grounds for more dukkha. It's like what we call the worldly dhammas, the eight, foot, eight worldly dhammas, praise and blame, gain and loss, status, lot of status, pleasure and pain. We can run around, spend all our time, all our life trying to seek more pleasure, more gain, more praise, more status and power, but we're forever trying to protect it, hold on to it, it's forever slipping away from us because we're still caught into the cage, into the world. And the Buddha took it to a whole different level. He was looking 
completely to liberate himself from this whole round of happiness, suffering, dukkha, sukha, dukkha, sukha, happiness, suffering. Ajahn Chah used to say the peaceful mind is beyond happiness and suffering. It doesn't cling on to either. It's different from the normal worldly view, the unenlightened worldly view of things, which sees happiness as better than dukkha and keeps getting caught into looking for happiness, trying to hold on to happiness. The peaceful mind comes from actually not taking up either happiness or suffering. Say the mind of the Aryapukala sees them as equal. They're mental states that arise and cease, that are still dukkha, that are not self. They're anicca, dukkha, anatta. They have the equanimity and the insight to see that, so they don't grasp either happiness or suffering. So true peace is, isn't, isn't happiness in that sense. It's not worldly happiness. It's understanding the nature of worldly conditions as impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Now this is the direction the uh, Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist path is taking us. But it's something we have to cultivate for ourselves. It's not a philosophy or a, a view that we just believe in. It's something we have to investigate look at and see the value of through our practice. And normally, you know, when we're young, we tend to completely miss the path of practice because we're so bound up with learning about the world and using our body to find more happiness. It's so automatic. They talk about the conceit of youth. You know, when we're young, you can move around, for most people, if they don't have a disability or illness, they can move around as they wish. Physically, we're strong and able, so we can go places, do things. So we never see the mind that lies behind our actions. The mind, when craving or attachment arises, it's so fast, and the body just becomes a vehicle for it. We want things, so we seek them out and get them. We can move around, we can, as if, keep outrunning dukkha. We can keep changing posture, doing different things, finding ways to distract ourselves from dukkha. As you get older, it kind of catches up with you. You can't do it so well. But if we haven't trained in the path, then often that brings a lot of suffering. You know, the fear of aging, sickness, as we live longer in the world, we can't outrun dukkha so well. We can't distract, distract ourselves with the pleasures of the world so well. We start to feel a lot of despair, disappointment. And the wise person comes to the Dhamma and sees the value of developing some mindfulness and insight, developing the path. When we come into the monastery, a lot of our practice is based around this developing restraint because we've been so used to following our desires, our moods. 
when it hasn't been in our best interests. It tends to feed the delusions that cause us stress. So we come into the monastery, we start training in the Vinaya, training in Sila, restraint, mindfulness, simplicity, living in the forest, not seeking a lot of material things, learning to live in a harmless way with other people. That requires a lot of effort and you have to keep reminding yourself why you're doing it. Understand the, the purpose of it because often in the beginning the monastic training, the Vinaya, brings up frustrations. We're not following desires like we used to. Sometimes we have to sit sit on the floor for long periods when we don't want to. We can't sleep or rest when we want to. We can't seek out entertainments and different things that we want to. We have to learn to deal with that. The frustration that the Vinaya, the discipline or the sila brings up. We have to have a lot of patience. You have to keep developing a skillful attitude towards it to see it is a vehicle, it's a way of training, disciplining just the most coarsest of our desires and attachments that have caused us so much suffering. Once we appreciate this point, we become more at ease, keeping the Vinaya, following the, the training rules and the ways of practice. It's like the fertile ground for nourishing that tree. It's the earth, the sila, the Vinaya is the earth that provides the nutrition that the roots draw up into the tree. Because the Vinaya only leads us to cultivate skillful qualities, you know, the right effort, abandoning our more, most coarsest negative tendencies, our greed, anger, delusion, and naturally steers us to develop non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion, contentment, compassion, kindness, and wisdom. So we have to allow enough time, it's the patience of allowing the tree to grow, we have to allow enough time for that process to take place. And we have to learn restraint, learn the discipline, then you start to appreciate it over time. Ultimately it becomes just second nature, just like previously as an unenlightened being living in the world, following Kilesa was second nature unquestioned, just an ordinary habit. Over time the Vinaya becomes second nature. It becomes like a best friend. It's a protector, a guardian, something that you value and you're quite happy with. Even if it still sometimes feels frustrating because of our unaddressed desires, internal desires that come up, we can see the basic value of it. It becomes like a good friend over time because it keeps you out of trouble. You notice when you study the Vinaya, a lot of the training rules are about keeping the rule whether you're in public or private, whether other people know or not. doesn't matter because you're training your own mind and you have to be responsible for that. The unwholesome karma that we make when we give in to the kilesa, the mental defilements, 
is unwholesome karma whether other people know about it or not. Whether you're on your own or you're with other people, it doesn't matter. It's still unwholesome karma. It's still the cause of suffering. The Vinaya is really getting down to the roots of that, developing right effort and supporting the development of mindfulness and wisdom that then goes on to the training in meditation. It's not separate from, it's just another factor in the development of meditation. This is why so many lay meditators find they're kind of hitting a brick wall, because often they don't see the relationship between sila, samadhi and panya. But in a monastery there's no way around it. You're, you're, you're learning that relationship day by day through experience and hopefully you come to value it so the Vinaya is no longer seen as some kind of burden or obstacle but rather a support for the practice. And it gives us some of that strength to overcome defilements internally. You're building up patience, resolution, mindfulness, wisdom, all the virtuous qualities. So Ajahn Chah used to say it's a development of the mind. So as you take up the Vinaya training and you keep to it, then your mind is changing from the mind of a Patujana, the unenlightened being, to Kalyanajana, one who is virtuous in their behavior. Not yet Aryachana, the Aryapugala, the noble one, but one who is on the path practicing. They have a certain dependability in their behavior, even if they haven't had full insight into the Dhamma yet. Already the Vinaya gives us that karmic result. In simple terms, keeps us out of trouble, prevents the mind from falling into extreme states of suffering and dukkha. And it supports the arising of the more refined states of mindfulness purifies our mindfulness practice. You know, as we do practice meditation, learning to calm the mind, develop samadhi. By upholding the Vinaya, it's purifying that practice. So it's reducing the opportunity for further delusion to sneak in. Because obviously, even when you meditate, you have different experiences, blissful states, different knowledges arise, insight arises. There's always the chance for delusion to slip slip back in, different kinds of conceit. No longer maybe conceit based on the worldly things of you know, who we are, our background, what we look like, our job, our family and all those things. Now it's more just the conceit of our experience in meditation, the knowledge, the peace, the different experiences. Still it can happen, but the practice of the Vinaya protects us from any extreme damage from that. It gives us a chance even to contemplate the conceit that might arise around what you might call successful meditation. States of samadhi that arise. Not giving in to a sense of self that leads us to 
look down on others or compete with others. So Vinaya and Samadhi are absolutely linked, supportive and necessary for cultivating the path. And out of that provides the foundation for wisdom. The Samadhi gives us the stillness, the clarity that we can actually see the nature of physical and mental phenomena for what they are. You can see this body and mind for what it is. The body is made up of material elements. They're not a self. The elements come together and then as we age, get sick and die, they break apart. And there's no self in that. The perception of self is something we've added on, you know, reinforced since we were born. Parents, friends, people around us, society as a whole, build, build up the sense of self and we do it. But as you meditate, the stillness of the mind, the refinement of samadhi, gives you the chance to look back at this body for what it is. It's a collection of elements not really a source of happiness. You're constantly providing pain, discomfort, illness, hunger, thirst. With samadhi, we can reflect and contemplate on that without just falling into more states of dukkha, you know, liking or disliking the body, but just seeing it with equanimity the way it is. It's like this. Ultimately, it's a unreliable, it's not a source of happiness and it's not ours. You know, the mind takes over the body and says, this is mine. The body knows nothing. It's just physical elements that don't know anything. They have no label on them, no name on them. They arise and they stay around for a while and then they scatter, disperse all those elements, go back to nature. Something we have to repeatedly keep investigating. So we use the cultivation of samadhi, regularly meditating, cultivating mindfulness, and you start to pay attention to the truth. It's not necessarily anything very intellectually difficult or challenging. You're just paying attention to the way things are. And this body is going according to nature. And it's, we don't control it. We don't own it. If there's no mindfulness, no wise reflection, then we just tend to automatically follow you know, our reactions to pleasure. We like it, think about it, want it. Painful feelings we dislike, try to get away from, think about it, think about getting away from pain, how to get rid of it, how to destroy it. Pleasure, how to get more of it, how to keep it. All the time. Through our senses, we see pleasant things, we like them, want them. See unpleasant things, we don't like them, we don't want them. Through all our senses and then through our mind itself. Constantly reacting to pleasure and pain with attraction and aversion. But through the practice of mindfulness and steadying the mind with samadhi, then we can contemplate this. 
and see the very process where feeling gives rise to craving, gives rise to attachment and becoming. Dismantling little by little some of these delusions, deluded perceptions we've been holding on to quite automatically for so long. The things that we take as self, as beautiful or ugly, mine, what I want, what I don't want, these perceptions, these attachments start to fade because we're seeing through them, seeing them what they are. They're just mental states and views that arise and cease, but there's no one in that. They're not very real, not very solid. It's not like we've got nothing left. We still have mindfulness and wisdom, a far more reliable source of happiness for the mind, source of peace for the mind. So as we practice, that's our aim is to cultivate these qualities, cultivate the sila, the samadhi, the panya. It gives us the clarity to see things as they really are, just like the Buddha. To understand dukkha for what it is, see dukkha as dukkha, cause of dukkha, understand that. And develop the skill to abandon it, experience the cessation of dukkha, niroda. Ajahn Chah used to tell people, you come to the monastery, it's not a place for escaping dukkha, it's a place for looking at dukkha. Out in the world they think this is, might be some kind of escape. Where they say, oh, you're not in the real world, you're escaping the real world. Well, if you're using the monastery correctly and the way of practice correctly, you're looking at the world far more intensely and closely than people out in the world who tend to be much more distracted. In the monastery you're looking like under a microscope, you're looking very closely at dukkha for what it is. You're not flinching, you're not running away from it now, you're using it as a source of wisdom. You understand when there's mindfulness and insight working in the mind then you can see dukkha for what it is. You're freeing your mind from suffering. No mindfulness and insight you become a victim of it. It defeats you. And it generates more suffering, more attachment, more craving, more attachment. So we spend time practicing. Mm. We be, become used to looking at painful experiences with mindfulness rather than just reacting and running away. We look at them, understand where they come from, understand their nature. Ultimately, they just arise and cease. However unpleasant a mental state we experience during the course of our practice, the one thing we can know and get to know is that it arises and it ceases. What arises and ceases is dukkha, because it's not anything lasting, doesn't provide lasting happiness, it's unstable, subject to degeneration. 
what is it? What doesn't last, what's dukkha, you can't take as a self. So dukkha, we don't need to take ownership of it. We just get to observe it and let go of it. Ajahn Chah used to say over and over again, all, in the end all there is is dukkha arising and dukkha ceasing. But the mind that knows that is free from dukkha. You know, that's the insight. And the insight is liberating, brings peace, relief to the mind, because it no longer has to get involved with dukkha. But not through some kind of temporary escape or distraction, but just clearly seeing the nature of it. It's just Dukkha arising, dukkha ceasing. It's just that. It's not a person, me, you, us or them. It's not a being. It's just dukkha, it's just phenomena. It's just the, the way things are. The mind sees that, pulls away, doesn't want to get involved with it anymore. Doesn't want to create dukkha, doesn't want to attach to it. This is why Lumpo Cha kept coming back to the practice of, practice of patience and persistent effort. So obviously it's a skill to develop mindfulness and insight to be able to look at dukkha and see it for what it is. It's a skill, it takes time, it takes cultivation. Patience and persistent effort is what gives you that ability to keep coming back, establishing mindfulness, contemplating, seeing the way things are. No patience and we're back into just running away from dukkha, not understanding the whole process, the way mind creates suffering, not seeing the way out of suffering because we don't give ourselves enough time or enough chance to do it if we're impatient. But when we practice patience, we bring up some persistent, continuous effort, then you see the results. doesn't mean, mean instant relief from dukkha always. I mean, it's dukkha that's there for the ending of dukkha. You, know, you sit meditation, it requires effort. Sometimes you feel pain, feel tired, put up with different mental states. So it seems like that's dukkha, and it is. But it's dukkha for the ending of dukkha, which is different from the dukkha of the world which is just dukkha and you're just attached to it, caught up in it, without seeing anything else. The dukkha of the practitioner is the dukkha for the ending of dukkha. The intention is different, the mind is different. We're using dukkha as a, as a place to develop insight. So as meditators we don't have to be afraid of dukkha, we can learn from it, use it. If you're always afraid of dukkha, well, you never, never really progress. Always running away from every painful experience, every difficult thing, everything you don't like. And meditators can be like that very easily. Always trying to get the perfect place, the perfect kuti, the perfect monastery, perfect conditions, get rid of everybody and everything they don't like. But the meditation tends to be very fragile. <coughs> Them, even if they attain a blissful state, it's based on such manipulation of conditions. You often see them get very angry when the conditions change and they can't maintain things in the way they like. So 
that can come from a very blissful state suddenly back down to earth with a big thud, get angry with the next person or the next thing that disturbs them. Our meditation is to develop the strength of mind and the stillness and the stability to be able to look at dukkha as dukkha, see its cause and abandon its cause. So it's the greatest victory. The Buddha is the greatest conqueror. The enlightened ones, the noble ones are all victors, victors over their own mind, not over other people. If you really want to go beyond dukkha, then keep practicing with patience, with persistent effort. Do it more, sit more, walk more, contemplate more, bring up more mindfulness, put more effort into keeping the precepts and the vinaya. <coughs> the more you do it, the more you're creating the opportunity to go beyond dukkha, progress on the path to it, the end of dukkha. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.